This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Millions of people have uh, various wearable devices that help them track their physical activity, heart rate, and more. These devices have become an important tool for healthcare organizations looking to improve patient experience and outcomes while exploring the potential cost savings. As part of its study into the next stage of telemedicine, Johnson & Johnson announced earlier this year that it was collaborating with Apple in a fully virtual clinical trial called Heartline. Joining us to tell us more, Dr. John John Wang, who's head of integrated evidence in cardiovascular and metabolism at Johnson & Johnson. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Meet you. Thank you for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. I guess let's start with that connection of of big data and wearables and where we are with that in medicine right now because it, it feels like much like technology changing and developing over the course of every day, every week, every month, that it's the same way where where medicine is concerned right now, using a lot of this data. Yeah. So it's in the early days. Uh, let's just put it that way. And the reason it's early, even though there's penetration of these devices into the market, is that we don't really know what the meaning is, that is what the clinical outcomes are, right. by having people wear these devices and change their behavior, potentially. So until we sort of know what that looks like, we are assuming that they're helpful. We don't know. Uh, there's some early indicators that they might be, and I can talk a little bit more about that. So we're still trying to figure out the implications and if they really are helping. Yeah. We'll find out more. That's what the Heartline study is really about is, you know, is this really going to sort of change the outcome for people who develop this rhythmia, which is pretty common in people who are a little older, AFib. Right. And sp- sp- speak specifically to that and, and the connection between AFib and, and doing this work with Heartline and how important it is to, to have a better diagnosis for these people. Yeah. So just to give some people some background. So AFib is this irregular heart rhythm. Tends to happen in people who are a little older. So 65 and over are the entry is one of the entry criteria for uh, Heartline. But uh, if these people do develop AFib, or if someone develops AFib, they're at slightly increased risk of stroke. And actually, the risk can go up quite a bit if they're a little older. So the idea is, okay, hey, if we can diagnose it earlier, it seems to make sense intuitively that we may be able to prevent strokes in these people. That's the fundamental core concept. You have to intersect that, though, with where the technology currently is. So I don't know if people know, the Apple Series 4 watch came out I think in September of 17, with this new capability to track an ECG. So this is the electroactivity of your heart. And with that, now there is a a possibility that they could actually detect a fib uh, earlier in these folks. So the idea is to leverage the intersection of where the technology is currently with wearables, and the Apple Series 4 watch seems to be on the leading edge of that, Mm -hmm. with where this big public health problem of this increased incidence of AFib, as we call it, because the population is aging and it just, the two run together, aging and AFib, right. that if you could put the technology together with where the demographics are headed, that we could probably have a public health impact. And, you know, for J&J, that's a big deal because that's sort of our mission statement, which is to change the trajectory of human health. We know that AFib is going to be an issue. Let's see if we can intercept it. How, how much has the development of technology played into at least for you, the mindset at J and J of moving technology, uh, moving healthcare forward, yeah. because certainly healthcare right now is as important a topic as anything that we have in this country right now. Yeah, so I think there's recognition of the importance. I think people have had 
a lot of ideas, and there are tons of pilots going on at J&J, so J&J is active. I would say that it's in a little bit of pilot purgatory, okay. where things are not really taking off in a big way with a solid step in one particular direction. So when when I sort of opened up conversations with Apple, about two and a half years ago it took to, to get it to this point, um, there was this idea that we had to do it in a way that was meaningful. Sure. Like really meaningful. We didn't want to do a thousand patient study. We didn't want to do something that was just going to be a little blip. We said, we're going to commit and we're going to try to do something that's going to change the way we think, the way we actually operate as as a company within the particular functions that are involved in this project that we're uh, sort of lifting off with Apple. Because that's actually where the change actually happens and the way that people operate, mm -hmm. the way they think, the way they sort of work together. Uh, in this case, how they collaborate with a tech company, because J&J is fundamentally not a tech company. Sure, yeah. So what are the differences in the ways that we communicate and the way that we function as a team? Uh, all those things that percolate down to the people level yeah. are going to be really, really important. And those are some of the key learnings that we're going to take away from this, aside from just the fundamental fact that we're going to understand how to incorporate technology into healthcare. So what are the some of the, the hopes that you have from this from doing this work with Apple in terms of getting a, a better understanding around AFib. Yeah, so um, get this question asked a lot by people at Change. So what's in it for us, right? Um, I think related at the highest level to our mission statement, I think that if we can show that there's a change in the way that people with AFib or at risk of AFib are diagnosed and actually have better outcomes, that's a win. Sure. Because it's just, it's just going to make people healthier. Yeah. So there's that level, that's 30,000 feet. If you bring it down another 10,000 feet, it's around how do wearables actually change the way that people flow through the healthcare system? And the reason I zero in on that specifically is that we did a little, um, a smaller study, not with wearables. It's kind of wearable, it's a patch. It's actually an ECG patch that mm -hmm. you stick to your body for two weeks. And it's FDA approved and it measures your heart rhythm continuously for two weeks. We did this with Scripps out in La Jolla, uh, the NIH and with Aetna. And what we found, just to boil it up, is that we diagnosed more AFib, for sure, because mm -hmm. you're looking, whereas people generally don't walk around with this patch. Sure, yeah. So that made sense. Yeah. But what we found was that the flow of patients was different. They started going less to the ER, less to the hospital, hmm. and more to the cardiologist. So it, we changed the site of care, which was huge because from a, and so the implication is costs go down. Right. We're diagnosing more. So for those people who are at risk, presumably, and this is still to be determined, that the outcomes are better. So by... Getting involved in this, what we learn is how the value chain, so when patients flow differently through the healthcare system, the value chain changes. And as a manufacturer, we need to understand what that value chain will look like in the future, right. where the puck is going to be, as wearables penetrate the market more. Yeah. So that's a really key important learning, because then we know where to insert ourselves to provide value to the system. So it's basically the third leg of the triangle. Instead of going patient to to ER and ER to doctor, you're going patient to cardiologist directly, and you're saving in the process. Yeah, and you know we think that the patient experience is probably better. I mean, we all know what it's like to be in the ER. Yeah. I mean, you don't want that. Right. If you can diagnose it earlier because perhaps it's less severe, and you're funneled more, not by our funneling you, but you're just not in extremis. You're not experiencing symptoms at a later stage because you've detected it earlier by definition. Right. You're going to go to a less acute care setting and you're then going to get managed that way. 
Do you think that with the onset of wearables, especially around healthcare, that we have the potential of seeing better outcomes in general? And I ask that because we've all heard stories of people that will get a prescription for medicine and they either don't follow through with it or the medicine ends up somewhere else. And that has become a big problem in this country. But I think the hope is, in part, that wearables may be able to alleviate some of these issues within the healthcare system. Yes. So that's actually a second part of the Heartline project, the study. One is, can you just diagnose AFib earlier and therefore improve outcomes? But also there's a second part around medication adherence. Yeah. To your point, medicines people don't take. Yeah. And fundamentally, it's because they don't want to be sick. So, you know, if you don't want to be sick, then you don't want to do anything, have anything to do with that problem. And the rigor of taking the medicines right. day after day right. after day. Yeah. And so with the wearable, there can be reminders, there can be ways that are actually on your body that can sort of, you know, hopefully change behavior. And these are some of the things that we're going to try to figure out. To your point, there are some inherent problems in healthcare delivery. Yeah. It, it's totally embedded almost in human nature. So can we change behavior with a wearable that's reminding, that's nudging? There's a lot of... Um, behavioral economics that's sort of put into, right. and I say economics, not actual money necessarily, but just in the theories that we're using to put into Heartline to change behavior so that better outcomes can be achieved. Well, and, and it, it is a change of mindset. And it, and, and it may be one of, and, yes. and let me ask you this then, is it a topic where, is it an issue where it's going to be harder and harder to do that with say, the millennial generation, but as more, or I'm sorry, of the baby boomer generation, but it'll be easier with yes. millennials, Gen Z, Gen X, totally. because they are so more accustomed to digital and technology in their lives. And to a degree, I think there's more of a trust in that. Yes, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, it probably doesn't have to be such a huge jump from the baby boomer all the way to Gen X and millennials. We're seeing already those people who are on the cusp of becoming baby boomers. I mean, the penetration of smartphones I mean, is enormous and it's sure. growing in that segment. Yeah. They're becoming far more facile yeah. with it. Yeah. So this idea of like grandma who is just throwing the phone out and not using it and sitting in the drawer <laughs> is kind of going away. It, it absolutely it is going. Away. It's going away. Talk right? to my mom about yeah. that. And she's in her, in, in her 80s and she's using the yeah, smartphone she's, a lot. So, I yeah. mean, we know where this is going. Yeah. I mean, why, why adhere to these old tropes about, oh, they're too old? Yeah. Well, we know what's going to happen. It could be five, ten years, and that's not a long time frame. Yeah. You know, if you think about it, the iPhones have only been around for eleven years, and look yeah. at the immense impact it's had. Well, iPhones and other smartphones. So in healthcare, we have to be ready. So the idea that oh, we're just going to wait and we're going to said I. So basically, when I was talking to Apple, I said, listen, we need to do something because if we don't do something big, right, it's just going to come along and we're going to be left behind. I said, I'd rather be proactive and go where the puck is going to be and do something big. Yeah. They're all for doing things big. They don't do things small. So to try to wind up our organization to get behind this took a huge lift uh, to try to convince people just in the questions that you were asking. Yeah. was it, it, I was explaining, um, which was a difficult time because there were so many times that this thing could have died. Yeah. I would imagine that once you go through this Heartline study, that the potential is there for other areas in yeah, healthcare oh. to play off of this same type of study exactly. in in other areas of, of healthcare. You're absolutely right. So the the pattern that comes out of this is okay. You had mentioned earlier on is a virtual study. You know the way we the way we function in pharmaceuticals is that we have to generate robust data yeah. and evidence to support approval so that we can market our products um, to whichever country. 
So the way we generate that data is really, really important. Right now, it tends to be slow. It tends to be very expensive. And it's all for good reason, but there are ways to do it better. So with this new way, even if the study fails, and we don't actually have a product in the game, it's probably more the Apple Watch that's on 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 um, on trial, as yeah, it were, for yeah. in the study. Uh, but even if the trial doesn't show an improvement, I think we're still going to see some signals here and there. We're going to come away learning tremendous amounts yeah. about how to do things. And so as you apply it to uh, mood disorders, depression, so... You could run a study, you could imagine, with how people are interacting with their devices. Mm-hmm. How much are they moving? How's their sleep pattern? Yeah. All detected now by these wearables. <laughs> and you could sort of see patterns. Facial recognition. Yeah. How does it look? You could imagine that with these algorithms now, in conjunction with devices and the data that they produce, where are we going to go next with earlier diagnosis, better interventions, because you've actually diagnosed it earlier yeah. and you've picked up the signal? <laughs> so it's... It can go all sorts of ways. Now, that's just on more of the passive stuff right. um, where devices are just noticing things that you're doing in the background. Right. Take a step further where patients are now providing information. For example, these liquid biopsies, quote unquote, okay. where you provide a little sample of either saliva or you prick your finger and you give a little blood sample to a little attachment that goes into the phone. Sure. And it measures yeah. for you know DNA that may be related to a tumor or related to a viral infection that you have yeah. and then detect a change and then it can actually tell you, hey, your infection's getting worse or your your condition's getting worse or it's good. Similar so do, what we see with like diabetes monitoring these days. Exactly. Yeah. So why not apply that model to every other disease state? I mean, no one would ever go back in, in the diabetes care and say, you know what, I'm only going to look at it once every three months, yeah. which is what they used to do. So then how important then is the handling of the data and the and yeah. the protection of the data? Because that is a topic. It's not just Medicare, <laughs> no. medical that, that has no. that concern out there. Yeah, it's so true. That's a great point. So Apple, as you know, is fiercely uh, a proponent of privacy, yep. customer privacy. Yep. As you know, they wouldn't even unlock a phone in the terrorist case yep. now. Yep. Some people might Out debate in Sacramento, that. Yeah. yeah, people yeah. may debate that, but that's how strongly they feel, which is why we wanted to partner with them too, because we feel very much the same way at J&J. This is their data. We are totally going to de-identify it for the study purposes, and we're never going to be able to identify them unless there's a true emergency, in which case mm-hmm. we have to go to the IRB. It's called an Institutional Review Board, and it's an Ethics Review Board that says, okay, you can do this because we have oversight of the study, which they actually do. So it's a third party, and it, and it sits out there as sort of a, uh, a supervisor, as it were, mm-hmm. that's separate from us. So we sort of see this as a critical part of this, and really we're going to learn how to do this right. really well with Apple so that we – and they're teaching us all about how – how strict you really have to be. I mean, it almost seems like you have to be draconian yeah. about it to make sure that there's no slippery slope. Yeah. So uh, we're, I think we're on the right track. We're tracking with them. And uh, that's going to be part of the learning as well. It, it, it has to be incredibly interesting to be in a time where you now have these partners, and I'm thinking Apple and, and other smartphone and technology companies, that see this as... They, they see it probably from a couple of perspectives. One, they see it as a potential profit for them down the road, but they see the good that their technology can be involved in. And so it, it, it has to be an incredible time to be in, in this type of a sector when you have all of this collaboration going on. Yeah, so your point about collaboration is really key uh, because Apple is not a healthcare company. 
And we, J&J, are not truly a tech company in the way that you think of sort right. of hardware um, creation and software development. So you have to collaborate. And I think healthcare is so huge, so complicated. This idea, and what we're trying to, at least we're trying to set up a, a, a unit within J&J, uh, a digital medicine unit, early thoughts, we're just trying to put it together now, where really we're, our saying is, just in, a, in three words, is integration is innovation. Okay. So you're taking pieces and you're putting it together to create innovation in bits and pieces that already exist. So when you think about the iPhone, it was an iPod plus a phone, both of which separately existed. You put the two together and boom, you have the iPhone, you have the smartphone, and look at the transformation that's happened as a consequence. We think it's very much the same way in healthcare. If we can collaborate appropriately with combined interests, then you can sort of see the magic of how things can evolve. Right. The layer below that sort of three-word tagline, integrations, innovation, is there are three big components. One is data, like you've talked about, devices, like we talked about, and yeah. the other one is care delivery. Now, that's the other third piece, yeah. which is how can you insert these devices into care delivery? Because if they sit outside it, it's not going to affect change. It's not going to affect outcomes. It's Correct. not going to affect really anything. So how do you put those three things together, data, devices, delivery? That's going to be the secret. And again, it's more integration than it is sort of discovery. Well, anyway. Right. And, and, and you think about the, that, that data, and especially with the advent of telemedicine moving forward, to be able to have that data, whatever it might be, whatever medical issue it might be, coming from a person's arm or you know, in their smartphone, being able to go right directly to the doctor where he or she can make an evaluation in a quicker fashion, you're speeding up the process uh, of of seeing the doctor and having an evaluation, but you're also streamlining it to the point where you're taking a lot of the cost out as well. Yeah, cost, patient experience is improved. Yeah. You're not having to like go- like Do I it remember, from your home. I, yeah. Yes, I remember when I was just getting my daughter's eyes rechecked, right? And so I had to drive there, wait 40 minutes, yeah. doctor comes in, 10 minutes it's over, waiting for the checkout process, and nuts, uh, soup to nuts, it was two hours. Yeah. Now, could you do this? Okay. Now, maybe this is too futuristic, but could you just put the phone up, have the eyes check that way because of, for visual acuity? Yeah. And then, okay, it wouldn't be a full exam because it wouldn't have full dilation, but it could get you partly there yeah. such that, okay, for the media term, I, I need or I don't need a change in my prescription for my lenses. Right. Fine. And then maybe at some other future point, you can just get the dilation and be done. But if you're, if you're already getting to the point of facial recognition, it, it, you think that a next step down the road from that would be being able to do exactly what you're talking about, yeah. at least with vision care. Right. So there are lots of examples where the patient experience is improved, cost profile is improved, right. outcomes are improved. Right. And from a manufacturer's point of view, uh, like as J&J, what is the change in the value chain again? Right. How does that affect the economics? Right. And where do then we provide the most value when things shift, when the landscape shifts like this? Right. Because we can't operate in the, in the old model. But how much, uh, when, when you think about the collaborations that, that you have with Apple and, and other companies will have with other tech companies, how much uh, of the investment of it actually comes from the medical side in comparison to the tech side? And that becomes, uh, you know, the interesting fin uh, financial dynamic because of the fact that technology seemingly is a constantly changing yeah. process at this point. Yeah, it's a great point. I think uh, right now a lot of it is on the tech side. 
yeah. because they're the ones that are driving change. Right. They're the ones that are changing the entry point. They're the ones that are providing the new data sources. Correct. Yeah. So uh, a lot of it's dependent on their ability to move the technology forward as right. it becomes better and better. Right. Uh, that's where the investment is. We're in a kind of a good position where we sort of can pick and choose where the technologies are best and apply it to where the business areas that we're focused on yeah. to help our businesses shift and adapt to the new landscape that will come. Yeah. So I think right now our purpose is to understand what that landscape will look like. To do the study, we have a lot of clinical expertise to run studies. That's sort of our bread and butter. Yeah. But then do it in a way that incorporates these new technologies and then learn from it and then apply it strategically through our businesses in a way that sort of we think will make the most impact, both from a outcomes point of view, from our customers' point of view, like our payers, yeah. our physicians, our patients, and then from our point of view, just from a business point of view, can we be better at what we do to deliver value to those customers? Give us quickly uh, your thoughts on, on being involved in a conference like what's going on here today at Wharton, talking about customer analytics and and the initiative that's going on and, and obviously the importance of this right now. Yeah, so I spoke with Raghu about it. It's phenomenal. First of all, you guys among the peer set that you, that you compete against, like the Stanfords and the Harvards, clearly head and shoulders above vis-a-vis -vis the customer analytics. Yeah. There's, and I heard something like 15 to 20% of all the undergrads and the grads yep. actually sort of majoring. Yep. That's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that sort of focus on that. And what I'm hearing is, is that it's, it, okay, so it's about analytics. And people, I think, immediately through word association think it's all about uh, crunching numbers and sure. computers. It's not. It's clearly about the integration into the real world. Yep. And what's the meaning and the interpretation and the significance of it so that you're not sent down a rabbit hole just based on some analytic output. Right. You have to have context. You have to know what's important, what's not important, how to prioritize. I think that skill set, from what I understand, uh, the analytics uh, initiative here are trying to achieve, mm. really, really is so key. And I think that's just a, a phenomenal place that you guys are right now. Sounds so. like you're learning just as much as you are <laughs> delivering a speech here today, right? <laughs> I'm trying to anyway. Well, it, it, but I mean, it is interesting that we are in a time uh, of of how important data and analytics is to so many different businesses and how healthcare really, I think, is on the cusp of change yeah. because of this. Yeah, yeah. So I think that when I think about it, in the 20th century, it was sort of the electronics um, uh, era. Yeah. So there you had computers, you had miniaturization, and, and we see all the benefits that came out of that. Yep. Um, now, I think for the 21st century and beyond, it's about the biological uh, revolution. There's so much more that we're going to learn, and we're already starting to see it now with a number of approvals at the FDA and the new science that's coming to the to, to the market. Yeah. Uh, there's going to be so much opportunity. So I, we're really excited about where the technology can take us in terms of wearables and where the new science in terms of biological science and understanding is going to take us as well. John, nice meeting you. Good luck with Great this. Great to meet you. Thanks Thank so much. You. Thank Do you. Dr. John Wang uh, from uh, Johnson & Johnson joining us here in studio. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.